Again to Revelation chapter 16 uh, this morning, looking at verses 13 through 21 today, that's the goal anyway, and uh, we come to another one of those sections in the book of Revelation that kind of everybody knows about. Everybody knows about or is at least at least has heard about Armageddon, and it's probably one of the uh, uh, terms or figures of speech that is uh, as misused as any uh, from the book of Revelation, at least, is this idea of Armageddon. Oh, if uh, so-and-so gets elected, it'll be Armageddon. Uh, this is Armageddon, that's Armageddon, and something else might be Armageddon. But uh, the fact of the matter is that Armageddon, or even more correctly, Harmageddon, kind of like our, uh, at least the NASB mentions there in verse 16, that's the proper pronunciation, it has an H on the front of it there, is a real place uh, that is in the nation of Israel, and it is a place that has actually been the scene of uh, many, many battles throughout history. It's not just a uh, fig, fig, figment of our imagination or a figure of speech, something that is representative of something. No, it's, a, it's an actual place that we could go to, that we can uh, learn about from history that has actually been very prominent in kind of the history of, of warfare throughout time. And that's because of its geographical position. For one thing, its geographical position on the planet. Uh, it's in a very uh, prominent place that is kind of the dividing line, has been throughout history between kind of the great kingdoms of the world. So, and it's a place of, of commerce and travel. So nations just sort of naturally come together in this place. And when nations come together, uh, they fight. <laughs> so uh, this plain of Megiddo is a place that has seen a lot of warfare. In fact, I, I got a book this past week uh, by a man by the name of Eric Klein. He is a uh, scholar Ph.D. professor, uh, archaeologist, and he's uh, at, at least his education is secular. I haven't read the entire book. I kind of skipped to the end. Uh, it's a book entitled "The Battles of Armageddon," and uh, basically, it uh, st he studies and talks about all of the battles in the past that have taken place in in this area, the plain of Megiddo, and around. This Mount Megiddo, that's what Har-Megeddon actually means, is Mount Megiddo in Hebrew. And, uh, and so he, he notes all of these, and he also talks about a future battle that will take place. That, that's kind of what I skipped to, if I'm honest. When I got the book, I read the table of comments and immediately skipped to the end to read it, what he had to say about the book of Revelation. But at any rate, he kind of a famous quote from Napoleon who actually did some fighting there in this area. Napoleon, of course, French uh, king and general, says that the immensity of the plain of uh, Megiddo in this place, the immensity of the plain is so astonishing that when Napoleon Bonaparte first viewed it, he was reported to have said, 
All the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground of the whole earth. And that's precisely, I don't know if Napoleon had Revelation 16 and following in his mind when he said that, but that's precisely what Revelation says is is going to happen. And I found it very interesting when Eric Klein, uh, Dartmouth undergraduate, Yale doctorate, scholar, archaeologist, I found it very interesting when he read Revelation 16 and kind of the book of Revelation in context and explained what it says is going to happen at one point in the future. It was was just very interesting to me that he said, well, according to the book of Revelation, what's going to happen in the future is that there's going to be this period of time where these great Uh, devastating events happen on the earth. There's going to be earthquakes. He said there's going to be eclipses. And we talked about that. I don't think it's going to be eclipses. I think it's going to be supernatural darkening of the sun. And we learned about intensification of the sun last week and uh, wars and famines and all these things are going to happen. And then the armies of the world are going to conglomerate, come together in Megiddo, And then the next Messiah is going to come and he's going to wipe them out. And then Satan is going to be cast into an abyss for a thousand years. And there's going to be a time of regeneration on the earth. And then Satan is going to be released. And then he will finally and fully be conquered. And then a new era is going to begin. That's what Professor Eric Klein, secular scholar, had to say about these Events. In other words, just a plain reading that anybody who has a kind of at least a high school level of reading could read this, and that's the conclusion that you come away with, that these are actual events that will take place. They haven't taken place in the past. None of these things have happened in the past. They will take place in the future. And it will end with Christ coming again and establishing his kingdom on the earth. Even secularists can see this from a plain reading of the scripture. And that's what we'll be talking about today, that the world is being deceived. The world is right now in the process of being deceived so that these things will take place. It's happening right now and we need to be we need to be aware of that. Obviously, in the tribulation time, it's going to be intensified, but the groundwork is being laid right now. Uh, and so in our study of the book of Revelation, we haven't just uh, gone into the deep end here. We have studied the entire book in context, and this is where we find ourselves today in the midst of the tribulation period, future seven-year tribulation period, where uh, God is going to pour out his wrath upon the earth in, with the end goal of not just punishing sin, but bringing the nation of Israel to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And then he will come again 
rescue them and establish his promised kingdom upon the earth. But in our study of Revelation, we find ourselves in this seven-year tribulation period that comes before the kingdom is established. And that this really is the meat of the book of Revelation all the way from chapter 6 through chapter 19 is about this future tribulation period. And we find ourselves in these bold judgments now that we uh, kind of concluded at least the, the sixth bowl last time. And today we move into the seventh the seventh bowl and, and Armageddon, per, perhaps the most uh, popular one of the judgments at any rate that is to come in the future. Last time we began with the fourth bowl judgment there in verse eight, we saw fierce heat from the sun uh, being poured out on mankind that they're literally being scorched with fire from the sun in this in this heat that is coming from the sun that we may think is intense uh, now or growing intense now, but you want global warming, well, just uh, wait until the fourth bowl judgment. It will be actual global warming that is uh, causing people to die. And we see that mankind did not repent. They did not change their minds. They did not change their thinking about their sin and who God is. Instead, they shook their fist at God because of these plagues. Uh, and then the fifth bowl is poured out on the kingdom. Oh, the, the heat's too much for you? Well, how about total darkness? Why don't we just turn the sun off if you don't like that? And that's what happens there in the fifth bowl. And again, they uh, blaspheme the God of heaven, verse 11 says, because of their pains and the sores that were poured out in the first bowl judgment. They did not repent of their deeds. They did not change their minds about their sin and the thing that is separating them from a holy God. And then the sixth bowl was poured out that brings this uh, what we termed as intense drought. I'm not sure that that's uh, really what the cause is going to be, some kind of drought. I think this is some sort of supernatural drying of that Euphrates River that really is a barrier between East and West has been throughout history. This is uh, somewhat uh, not an impenetrable barrier, but a very large barrier keeping the Eastern world from the Western world, at least on this uh, easy highway into the promised land. Uh, the Euphrates River has been a barrier. Well, that is going to be dried up in the sixth bold judgment to allow these kings of the east to uh, make their way into the promised land uh, to carry out this battle that we find in the seventh bowl. And so today we will see these signs of deception, the seventh bowl being poured out, and then we're, we're going to kind of go out of order of the text and come back to verse 15 in the end, which is a verse that is all about sanctification or the life that we as believers ought to be living in the midst of this deception. And we'll get into who, 
who this is addressed to and, and kind of these questions and take away some, some application for us. I hope that you have been enjoying our study of Revelation. I certainly have enjoyed studying it uh, because I, I already knew going in that, well, Revelation, it's not just a book about the future and prophecy and all of these things that we, uh, maybe you're not interested in prophecy, I don't know. <laughs> it seems to be a popular topic with people. Uh, but the book of Revelation is so much more than that. It is, yes, of course, it is a book of prophecy. It has these future events in it, but it is so practical and so directed to us that it helps us in our daily lives as much as any, as much as uh, the book of Ephesians or Romans or any other New Testament epistle. This book is very pointed and helps us very much in, in our daily living today. And so let's take a look again at Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14 say, and I saw... So that first word, and, so this is a progression after the sixth bowl, in other words, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then in verse 16, it says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. So notice, first off, that we have this unholy trinity that is mentioned there in verse 13. Like Satan, uh, Satan wants to be God. That, That has been his intention from the, I think, the time of, well, obviously, from the time of the garden in uh, Genesis chapter 3, I, I, this isn't written in the Bible. This is kind of my own personal theory of what I think happened with Satan. I mean, he's a created being. At some point, personally, I believe during the seven days of creation, God created the angels. That's what Satan is. He is, he is an angel. At some point in there, the angels are created. Uh, and of course, the earth is created. Huma- humans are created. This whole world is created for us to see the stars, the sun, the moon. God does this amazing uh, creation. And Satan sees this and thinks, I want to be in charge of this. I see where this is going with people and and how they're going to fill the whole world, and I want them to worship me. So he goes and deceives uh, Eve in the garden. And so he wants to imitate God. He wants to take his place. And so as the Bible very clearly teaches a holy trinity of uh, three persons in one divine being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Satan has kind of created his own uh, unholy trinity, if you will. And that's what we see here in verse 13, very plainly laid out. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth 
of the false prophet. Well, the dragon, we don't have to uh, use our uh, imagination to know what the dragon is. The, the scripture tells us very clearly back in uh, Revelation 12 and verse 9. It says, speaking of the dragon, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. So when we see the dragon in the book of Revelation, it's very clearly representative of Satan. The beast is mentioned there. Well, we know who the beast is, Revelation 13 and verse 1. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Satan, in this vision that John is having, Satan stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horn were ten diadems, and his heads were, uh, on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. We saw that this first beast is uh, the Antichrist. Uh, And he is depicted here in language that is very similar to a coming kingdom. This one world kingdom that is coming in the future, that's being built today as we, as we speak. There are people who are very desirous for the world to be under one system of government, the entire world with one person in charge. Well, that I hate to be the bearer of bad news for us, but they're going to be successful. The book of Revelation lays that out for us, uh, that there is coming a one world kingdom that is going to be ruled by one person. We know him as the Antichrist. He is the beast here. And there's also a false prophet, the second beast of Revelation 13, verses 11 and 12, that we studied these individuals in detail. Verse 11, Revelation 13, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So this is the unholy trinity, if you will. Satan as being a, a blasphemous misrepresentation of God the Father, the beast being the son. He's even resurrected, we saw, that, he's, that he endures some kind of fatal wound, but yet he's brought back to life, uh, obviously uh, imitating Jesus Christ. And then this false prophet who is kind of the, the spiritual driving force behind this whole, this whole coming one world government, one world religion. <clears throat> Uh, and he is the false prophet. And so these are literal people who are going to exist. Yes, it uses figurative language here. Of course it, of course it does. Of course it has throughout Revelation uses figurative language, but it's describing literal people who will exist during a, a future tribulation period. Uh, it, it would seem that Satan is going to be, obviously, is going to be more active on the earth during this tribulation period than he is even now. Uh, 
I don't think you have to have a lot of uh, discernment to see that even in the last 10 or 20 years, it seems that there is even more satanic activity now on the earth than there was 20 years ago. Uh, that seems kind of obvious. It, this is something that kind of ebbs and flows. Satanic activity was very uh, prominent during the time of Christ uh, when he was on the earth, and it's going to be similar to that during this tribulation period. And this Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet are going to be the two prominent people that Satan uses during this tribulation period to, to lead the world in this incredible deception that is going to take place. So Satan here has his imitation trinity, if you will. And this just kind of reminded me, I saw some articles this week about China and uh, Russia using or uh, stealing technology from America. And that I couldn't help but be reminded of, the, of them in seeing this false trinity that they, the, the uh, Russians back in my day when I was in the military anyway, they had uh, the, our biggest airplane at the time back then was the C, C-5. It still is today. And the U.S. Air Force, well, the, the Russians had what we called the C-5 ski. It was almost an exact representation of the C-5, just a, a, a Russian version. And guess what? The Russian and Chinese versions of American technology aren't as good as ours. Uh, kind of like this. <laughs> this, holy, this unholy trinity, is, it's an imitation. It's not as good as the real thing. It's not even uh, close to the real thing, actually. And notice uh, what hap is happening here out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are, uh, came out of their mouths, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to uh, essentially deceive them. Now this is, this is a wonderful example of figurative language here. Verse 13, spirits like frogs. That's figurative language. When we see in verse 12, for example, we don't see figurative language. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that even for a purpose, the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. That is, that's literal language. There's nothing there that says the angel poured out his bowl on something like the Euphrates River and insert your mystical event took place. No, the Euphrates River dries up so that the kings from the east can come and invade the middle, the, uh, the promised land, the nation of Israel is literally what it is describing there. Here in verse 13, out of the mouths of these three individuals come unclean spirits like frogs. That doesn't mean that frogs were coming out of their mouths. It means spirits were coming out of their mouths that reminded John of frogs. Now, what does that look like? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I can't, I don't really know. But 
He tells us what they are. So we don't have to imagine. We don't have to make something up. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons. So these are demonic spirits that are coming out of their mouths. In other words, these people are saying and doing things that are demonically inspired for the purpose of deceiving the world. And we've already seen this in Revelation uh, 13 and verse 14. It says this, this is what the false prophet is all about. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So this isn't something new now that the false prophet is just all of a sudden after the sixth bowl judgment uh, is starting to do. No, he's been doing this from the beginning. He, that is who he is. He is one of deception. Uh, Paul warned the Thessalonians about this, and by uh, extension, us, about these signs of deception. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of this same Antichrist, says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Again, a, a good, we spent, when we studied Second Thessalonians, we spent a lot of time on this passage, but notice why these people are Deceived. It's not because they didn't have a choice. It's not because they were uh, condemned from eternity past or these kinds of things. No, they, they were condemned because they didn't receive the truth so as to be saved. It's no one's fault but their own. They were deceived because they wouldn't believe. That, that is very clear there. But again, uh, this Antichrist, one who is also performing signs, it would seem here in Second Thessalonians 2, deceiving people, leading them into deception so that they will believe in him rather than in God. And Jesus Christ, of course, warns of this same thing, these false uh, signs that are going to happen in the future. Matthew 24 and verse 24 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, if possible, even the, the, the nation of Israel, the chosen people at this time, they might even be deceived. I guarantee you some of them are going to be deceived and believe in the Antichrist, believe in these false signs that are being going to be performed, signs of deception. And the entire world is going to be deceived here. Uh, 
verse 14 there in the middle these are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of god the almighty verse 16 they gathered them together all the nations of the world are going to be gathered together here so it's not just uh, individual people but we're talking about the entirety of the world is going to believe in these signs it is going to be drawn to this place in israel Uh, these signs are going to i think convince the world i think what is being portrayed here is that these signs are going to convince the world the nations of the world to come Together, uh, it would seem to go to war against God, to eradicate him finally and fully from this world, and to, uh, to worship the Antichrist, to set Satan up as God, and to completely eliminate the God of the universe from his own creation. And boy, <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. Uh, it's, it's not going to work in the end, but these signs, but the people are going to be deceived so much so that they will do this and they will follow the Antichrist and Satan right to their, to their own doom. And so what is kind of the uh, takeaway for us today we ought not to be deceived by signs because believe it or not, there are people out there who want to deceive you. Even though we're not living in the, anti- in the tribulation period today, there are people who want us to, to think that we are. And there are people who, even if they don't think that, they want to deceive you for one reason or another. And uh, the majority of the time, it is to get you to give them money. That's where the where the deception uh, comes in for us today, in large part. And so, uh, something that we have to understand about signs and and miraculous events. Well, there's a couple of key things to remember. First off, uh, they they are not ubiquitous throughout all of. Scripture. In other words, they're not miracles and signs are not something that are happening from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture. Uh, Mike mentioned that uh, that uh, James Usher determined today to be the the foundation of the world of around six thousand years ago or so. I, I think he's I think he's pretty close to being right on that. Uh, And that's what the Bible talks about is essentially the world from the beginning of creation until it ends. And uh, it covers a lot of the events in between then up until obviously the time of the coming of Christ. So we're talking about, oh, 4,000 years or so of human history. And during that time, uh, well, Moses did some some miracles even in the time of Moses he he wasn't uh, performing miracles on a whim every day of the week God was performing some miracles for them one of them giving them food to eat every day during their 40 years in the desert but Moses certainly wasn't performing signs every week or 
or every day, these kinds of things. So even when the miracles were being performed then, they were still limited. Uh, Elijah is another person who performed signs along with Elisha. Well, there's, uh, there's a good bit of time between Moses and Elijah where we're not seeing uh, people performing miraculous signs. Uh, and then, well, we sort of have to go all the way to the time of Christ before we start to see miracles again being performed on a regular basis, or at least even being performed in the history of Scripture. So we have people like Abraham, who he never performed a miracle. Uh, David, Solomon, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, uh, all of these incredible people from the, who are mentioned, some, many of them mentioned in, in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, who aren't performing miracles. So all that to say, miracles are not something that are happening every day of the week. Every time you show up to church, you expect some kind of a miracle to take place. I think if that's the case, you might be being deceived. Uh, so first off, miracles don't happen all the time. Second off, false miracles do happen. The Egyptian uh, magicians in the time of Moses, they also, you can read about that in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, they were able to do the same things that Moses was miraculously doing in many uh, cases. Simon, the sorcerer, Acts chapter 8, he's another person who performed false signs, Acts 8 and verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time ast astonished them with his magic arts, with his fake signs. He was able to astonish people and gather a following. And, and uh, oh, by the way, <laughs> He, he wanted attention from these people because he made money from them, of course, through his false signs. Uh, and we could have a whole big giant discussion about Simon and whether or not he's a saved person. I, I think he was. It says he believed, speaking of uh, literal interpretation. But anyway, back to <laughs> the topic at hand, false signs. God condemns doing this. He condemns people, Deuteronomy 18, or he condemns the act of, of doing this, tells the, the people of Israel to not uh, do these kinds of things. When you enter the, Deuteronomy 18, 9, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. We talked about that in uh, our study of Proverbs this morning. There, there shall not be one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, a sorcerer, one who casts a spell, a medium, or spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. 
you shouldn't have people who are performing these kinds of, of signs, God is saying. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. This, God doesn't want these people in his land. You certainly shall not be participating in that. And that's exactly what Satan is going to do during this time, that he is going to be using these kinds of signs uh, for the purpose of deceiving the nations of the world and the people of the world so that they will be motivated to invade God's land and uh, in an attempt to eradicate him from the world. And so notice the seventh bowl that is poured out there in Revelation 16 and verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell because uh, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath and every island fled away and the mountains were not found and huge hailstones about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because the plague of hail uh, because its plague was extremely severe. So the seventh bowl is poured out in the air. Uh, we, we have seen these bowl judgments really being poured out on, on all the main elements of creation, if you will. The first bowl was poured out on humanity, on mankind, and they uh, had these loathsome and malignant sores on them, according to verse 2. Uh, they were, these bowls were poured out on the waters of the earth, the second bowl and the third bowl, uh, turning the entirety of the waters of the earth to blood. We've seen the, the bowls being poured out on the sun in the fourth and fifth bowl judgments. And here we have this bowl being poured out on the air. And notice that it says that it is done there in verse 7. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is the very voice of God proclaiming that it is done. This is the end. It is even in the perfect tense for us there. With a, it is a completed action with ongoing consequences. It is, it is completely finished here. The seventh bowl is the end of the sequence of judgments. And we have seen uh, that there have been, this is the, the last judgment of the third of the last series of judgments, three sets of judgments that, uh, that sequentially will take place. First, we had the seal judgments that led to the trumpet judgments that lead to the bowl judgments. And this seventh one has been poured out and that is the end. That doesn't mean that's the end of uh, 
Revelation. Obviously, we still have about four, four chapters of information to go, but, it, but the seventh bowl judgment is the end of these series of judgments. It began with the seals, with the, the pseudo peace that, kind of, that begins the tribulation period, the first seal judgment, and then war broke out, and then there was famine with the third seal, and disease and death from the fourth seal. Great martyrdom will take place during this time because uh, people are going to literally be killed because of the word of God and because they believe the things of the word of God. Uh, this isn't uh, representative of being kicked off of Facebook or this, this kind of thing. This is people literally losing their lives. The sixth seal, there will be these incredible uh, signs and in the earth, signs in the sun and the stars and the seventh seal unleashed the seven trumpet judgments, which again happened sequentially uh, with the first trumpet being hail and uh, blood raining down, all the, the green grass being burned up, a third of the trees being burned up. Second trumpet, a third of the oceans are affected. Third trumpet, a third of the fresh water is affected, turned to blood. Uh, and then the fourth trumpet, more signs in the, in the heavens. Fifth trumpet judgment, there were these demonic locusts that came up and hurt people for five months at a time. Uh, then the sixth trumpet judgment, we saw this demonic army that is unleashed on the world, killing a third of the world's population. And then the seventh trumpet led into the seventh bold judgments that we've said kind of make up this period that is sometimes referred to as the great tribulation period. That these judgments are getting more and more intense as we move across this timeline of the seven-year tribulation period that ends with this battle of Armageddon in the seventh bold judgment, that the, the nations of the world being deceived to all come together in the land of Israel at Armageddon or better Harmageddon, where we will see in the coming uh, weeks where they will be destroyed. And so it is done with the seventh bull. We didn't see that with the, uh, we didn't see that kind of a statement with the seventh seal judgment, or this, even though the seventh trumpet judgment looked forward to the end, he didn't say it is done when that judgment took place. Instead, these bulls were then unleashed, and with the seventh bull judgment, it is done. And notice that it's not just this great battle that is going to take place, but there are other events that are very distressing, to say the least, that will uh, accompany this seventh bull judgment. There were, verse 18, flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was, oh, by the way, a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, that it, in, that it affects the entirety of, of the world. But first, 
We see that lightning and thunder, we've, this isn't the first time that this has been mentioned in Revelation, but it, it is uh, indicative of this great power that is being unleashed upon the earth uh, that uh, brings this, that is exemplified in this earthquake that comes upon the earth. In verse 19, it says that the great city was split into three parts. And now there's a, a great debate about, well, what is the great city? Is it Washington, D.C. or New York City? Uh, if we want to be really spiritual, is it Jerusalem or is it Babylon or is it something else? Well, uh, we can eliminate Washington, D.C. and New York City uh, right off the top. No, it's not talking about it's not talking about that. Basically, scholars come down on one of two ideas. It's either Jerusalem or it's speaking of Babylon. And there are a number of points in favor of both of these viewpoints. But personally, I would come down on the side of the fact that the great city being referenced here is, in fact, Jerusalem. Now, yes, Babylon is called, even here in verse 19, it's called Babylon the Great. We're going to see that uh, also in the coming chapters, that it is referred to as the Great. It's even called a Great City. But uh, it seems kind of pointless to name it three times here in this verse. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Well, ba and then mentioned Babylon by name. Babylon is the city of the nations. Uh, and when it says there in verse 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. The city that is opposed to the cities of the nations is God's city, the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, other places uh, mention a, an earthquake type event happening in the end times and having an effect on Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 being one of those. In verse 4, in that day, his feet, speaking of Jesus Christ, will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. That sounds like a very intense earthquake. The, the ramifications of that earthquake happening on, in Jerusalem. And so, uh, furthermore, Revelation 11, uh, in speaking of the two witnesses, uh, in their, their, them dying, if you will, will remember, back to Revelation 11 and verse 8, the two witnesses who were in Jerusalem died, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt and where also the Lord was crucified. Well, that's Jerusalem. That's where these two witnesses are going to be in this great city, which is opposed to the cities of the Gentiles. So I think it's uh, Jerusalem is what is being described there, being divided 
into three parts. And then notice Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. This, uh, the Bible, essentially, the history of, of man is one of his rebellion against God in large part. And that is exemplified by the city of Babylon as opposed to Jerusalem, God's city. And here we're seeing it kind of uh, come to its end here. This rebellion of mankind against God being brought to its end. And it's all going to happen in a place called Babylon. Verse 19, Babylon the great was remembered before God. And we've already seen this in Revelation 14 and verse 8. Uh, during one of our intermission periods, our second intermission period, we got to look ahead to the end, to this end that's now being described for us. Revelation 14, 18, another angel, a second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. See how this deception, it's not uh, just a deception that, that, oh, just bring your armies uh, to this place and we'll just, uh, we're going to war against God. No, there's, there's immorality is wrapped up within it. There's a reason why the people are being deceived. They want to be deceived. They want to fulfill their, their immorality, their passion for immorality. So they are being deceived and being drawn to this place and God's wrath is going to be poured out on them, which is what we saw in the end of Revelation 14, verses 19 through 20. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for the distance of 200 miles. And so uh, how in the world is blood going to run for 200 miles when this happens? Uh, that's just not even possible. There aren't enough uh, armies to make that happen. Well, what if all the armies of the world decided to uh, come together in one place? And we saw that, well, yeah, if that happens, well, then yes, certainly the blood could run for 200 miles. And so when we were back in Revelation 14, if you don't look forward to Revelation 16, you could think it couldn't happen. But now that we have the rest of the story, that the entire nations of the world are going to be drawn to this thing. All of the armies of the world are drawn to this place. And if they're all killed at the same time, then yes, the blood could run for 200 miles miles. The judgment doesn't stop there. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains were not found because of this earthquake. Verse 21, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because it's plague was extremely severe. So uh, I take away from that that the plague of the hail is worse than the plague of an earthquake that shakes the entire world, moves every island, 
eradicates the mountains, divides Jerusalem into three different parts. But what's even worse than that? 100-pound hailstones coming down upon the, upon the earth. Now, we had a hailstorm this past summer up north that was pretty severe. There were some pictures of, of baseball-sized hail that uh, can obviously ruin cars and go right through uh, decking and this kind of thing. Now, that that's this big. How big is a hundred, a 100-pound hailstone? And what does that do when it falls out of the sky? I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up or seen a 100-pound dumbbell, but they're, they're, they're pretty big. A uh, hundred pounds is pretty, pretty heavy. And that falling from the sky, I mean, it, that is coming through this building and killing people after it goes through the building. That is incredible destruction that is going to happen. And you would think, oh, well, finally, okay, we've got these cancerous sores, we've been burned by the sun, we've endured complete darkness, and now this earthquake, and then these 100-pound hailstones, okay, Lord, that's enough. I, I believe, I submit to you. No, that is not, in fact, what happened. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. They did not turn to God. They did not repent of their ways. Instead, they were hardened even more in their unbelief. And we will get into what is going to be the result of that as it's described in chapter 17, really through 19, in great detail. But we skipped over this verse Verse 15, this uh, parenthetical insertion here that says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked, naked and men will not see his shame. And uh, this is the part that is applicable to us. Uh, we are very firmly believe that uh, we will not be here during these events that are taking place. A, a consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible leads us to believe that we will be taken to the Father's house. We're, we're delivered from this time of testing, according to Revelation 3.10. But that doesn't mean that we should just oh, take our backpack off and just kind of rest on our laurels, if you will, until that happens. No, we need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need to understand that the, the deception that is going to come to fruition during this tribulation time is already happening. The spirit of Antichrist is already in this world, and there is an incredible price for us to pay if we are deceived, even though we don't face these judgments. We still face the consequences of our sin and our decisions even now. And so in the midst of this judgment being described, this future judgment, Jesus inserts a little warning here. And I, I'm going to tell you right now uh, who is addressed to, it's addressed to you. And verse 15 is addressed to me and believers now. 
so that we will not be deceived. But let's take a look at some of the other uh, options. Some people believe, some scholars, some good scholars believe that it's uh, being addressed to tribulation <laughs> saints. Christ, Christ doesn't come like a thief for the church is something you may hear, even from J. Vernon McGee. Now, I, I personally, uh, I like J. Vernon <laughs> McGee. I don't agree with every single thing that J. Vernon McGee says, but, but he's great. <laughs> he is a, a fantastic teacher of the Bible. However, this is one of those areas that I don't agree with him, that he, he says literally this, Christ doesn't come like a thief to the church. He says, Christ will never come as a thief to the church. A thief is someone you shut out. You don't welcome him. You never welcome a thief. You lock him out. Christ does not come as a thief to his church, which is looking for him. We're supposed to be looking for him. And if we don't look for him, he will come as a thief. A thief is someone who comes uh, unexpectedly if you're not ready for him. If you are ready for him, then you're prepared. You have your alarm set. You Perhaps you may have a firearm next to your bed or this kind of thing. Uh, you're ready for a thief when he comes, if you are prepared. And that's what uh, Christ is uh, representing here. Be prepared for his coming, or he will come like a thief, and you won't be expecting him to come. And so if, if we say this is uh, directed toward tribulation saints, well, he's still coming like a thief. <laughs> and they're still believers. Uh, we may not technically classify them as the church, but they're still believers that we're still going to be in eternity with them forever. Uh, and He's warning that he's warning them if it's addressed to them that he's coming like a thief. So the idea that Christ never comes to the church as a thief, I don't think that's technically correct. He wants us to be he wants us to be prepared prepared for his coming. He wants people during the tribulation to be prepared for his second coming to the earth. Hence Olivet Discourse and some of the parables that he says, particularly the parables of the virgins, that's what the entire uh, parable is about, being prepared for his second coming. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. I think this is being addressed to the readers of the letter. Hey, be prepared. The tribulation uh, could happen quickly. It will happen quickly. And oh, by the way, I'm coming for you, believer, before that event takes place. Uh, John 14 uh, 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 3, 10, just as a, a refresher for us, says, uh, because to the people, the church at Philadelphia, uh, I will make them come down and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance, period, 
I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 6 through 19 is about that hour of testing. These people will be delivered from that. You as a believer will be delivered from that. Furthermore, uh, the tribulation saints are either going to be dead according to Revelation 13, 15, or they're going to be under divine protection in some place in the world, according to Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And furthermore, this is very much in keeping with the previous uh, warnings that we have seen in this book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 1, 3. Revelation 3, 3. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Unless... You're paying attention. Revelation 3.18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus here in verse 15 is warning people to stay awake in these times of deception, these times that are leading up to this time of unprecedented deception during the tribulation. If you're not ready for it, he will come as a thief, you won't expect it, and you will be raptured and stand before him in judgment, having not been prepared. That's the entire point of the warning. Uh, This is the third beatitude, if you will, of the book of Revelation, a statement of blessing. There's a blessing if you stay awake. You keep your clothes, we'll see. These are the the righteous uh, acts, the blessing from the righteous acts so that he will not walk about naked. This uh, reward, if you will, for living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, Revelation 1.3, we've seen there's a blessing for reading, heeding, and hearing. The Reading, hearing, and heeding the things in this book. Uh, Revelation 14.13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow with them. There's a blessing for being obedient to the Lord and here we see there's, uh, again, another statement of blessing for being obedient to the Lord. So here, Jesus is imploring us as believers to be sanctified, to live in the our, uh, present tense of our salvation for him, to live for him now in this world. That's what sanctification is is all about. And here it's wrapped up in staying awake and keeping your clothes. Now this, uh, coincidentally enough, is exactly the opposite by staying awake 
Uh, Jesus means exactly the opposite of what the liberals say when they talk about being woke. Being woke today is essentially being in line with the message of the world, being in favor of uh, uh, mass homosexuality, uh, transgenderism, uh, Marxism, whatever, whatever the cause of the day is, that's what it means to be woke. You're awake to these things. Isn't that interesting that, that Satan, I don't really know any other better way to put it, Satan uses the same terminology as the Bible. It just sounds cooler. It sounds cooler to be woke than it is to uh, stay awake, as it says here in verse 15. Keep your clothes, walk in righteousness, as uh, has already uh, been described. With this idea of being awake, Paul says, what does it mean to be awake in terms of the Lord, Ephesians 5.3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. For there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. So unbelievers' lives are characterized by these things, is what Paul is saying there. So don't, don't live like that. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's what Revelation 6 through 19 is about. The wrath of God being poured out on the world because of immorality, impurity, greed, all of these things that uh, make up the quote-unquote woke agenda. It is wrapped up in immorality. That's what it's all about, living in a way that is anti-God. So don't do that. Instead, verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. These white garments are representative of our uh, righteous acts. We see that in Revelation 19, 14 also, that those who come with the Lord will be dressed in white. And this isn't something that we uh, do by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and white knuckling it and doing it on our own. No, we do. This is the walk of faith. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So how ought we to be living in this world today? Just one more passage. Do this, live for the Lord today, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed, Paul said 2,000 years ago. So how much uh, closer is it today. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So, yeah, I think verse 15 is directed right to, to you and me. Stay awake, believer, because he is coming. He's coming again at any moment. And when he does, we will stand in judgment before him. So let's not be deceived by the world. Let's not be deceived by these spirits of demons that are already at work in this world. But let's live for the Lord today. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation that is so pertinent and applicable to our lives today. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would be with us as we live and move and have our being, that he would guide us into the truth, that he would guide us into righteousness so that we can look forward to your coming again and that we would be known as a people who are zealous for good deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.